What I'm going to begin to do today is start a teaching that I've entitled Christian Philosophy. Now, I've had a tape series out about this for many, many years, and I consider it to be one of the most foundational, fundamental type things that I teach. But I'm aware that the word philosophy doesn't resonate with most people. Most people don't use the word philosophy, and if they do use it, it's uh, for something that doesn't really apply to their everyday life. But if you really understand what the word philosophy means, this is a tremendous word, and it, I believe, is the word I want to use to communicate uh, these things about a Christian philosophy, a Christian way of thinking, a Christian worldview. You could call it a Christian paradigm or Christian concepts or Christian uh, mindset or there's just so many different ways. But the word philosophy is actually a word that's used right here in the book of Colossians and it's a powerful truth and God used this many years ago to really speak some definite things into my life. So anyway, don't let this word philosophy put you off if you listen to this series. I think that this is really going to help you and it's going to make a big difference. Let's read here in Colossians chapter 2. And I'll start with verse 6 and go through verse 8. But let me say that if you could take the time to read all of Colossians chapter 2 and put this in its context, it would just strengthen the things that I'm saying. I'm not going to take time here to do that, but it really would be beneficial to you. So if you can, I encourage you to just take some time and look at all of this in in its context because it really even strengthens the point that we're making. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, it says, As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. And then verse 8 is really significant. Look at this. It says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of man, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Now again, if you were to put this in its context, the whole context of this is Paul is writing a letter to the people who lived in Colossae. These were people that Paul didn't personally evangelize, but rather somebody probably from Ephesus, where Paul spent two years in Ephesus, and had a tremendous revival there. Probably some of those converts went to Colossae, which was in that area, not too far from Ephesus, and they're the ones that actually evangelized these people. And because of that, when Paul heard about the church that was in Colossae, he wrote to these people to make sure that they had the foundational truths. You know, as you go from uh, the first generation to second, third, fourth generation, there's a possibility of something being left out. Paul just wanted to make sure that all of these new believers in Colossae had the basic foundational truths. And in the beginning of this second chapter, he was talking about these people had never seen him in the flesh and he longed for them to make sure that they understood. And he began to start establishing some of these things and talked about in verse 3 that in Christ are hid all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, trying to just redirect their attention that they didn't need anything else. They didn't, you know, this was in a Greek culture where they put a tremendous emphasis on knowledge, on learning. It's not very different than our culture where you had to have an education, you had to have all of these things. And a lot of people felt that, you know, just putting faith in God and trusting God wasn't enough, that you needed all of these other things. 
Paul was trying to redirect them and saying that Jesus is everything. He told them all of this. And then down here in the 8th verse, the one that we read, he specifically gave them a warning. And he said, beware. The word beware, if you look this up in the Greek, it's the exact same word that was used for like a sentry on guard duty. That's what it's talking about. It's a military term talking about be on guard, look out, lest any man spoil you. And the word spoil here, you know, we use the word spoil to describe like meat spoils, fruit can spoil. That means it's not edible, it's contaminated. But also the word spoil can be used like in a military term when you go out and fight an enemy, you defeat them and then they would strip the spoil. They would take all their gold, their silver, their weapons, their clothing and things like this and those were called the spoils of war. This is the type of spoil that this is talking about. It says, be on guard lest anybody overcome you and therefore strip you. Take these things that God has given unto you And here's how it happens. It says, through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Now, this is a warning that we don't let Satan steal from us what God has given us. And it specifically says this comes through philosophy and vain deceit, the traditions of man and the rudiments. That means the basic elements of this world or how Satan comes in and steals from us what God has given us. Now, I want to focus on this word philosophy because as when I first read this, I remember that it didn't compute. It didn't really speak to me, and so I had to meditate on this and study it. And I won't go into all of the detail, but here's the uh, summer, summary of the things that I learned. The word philosophy here, uh, one of the meanings was Jew- Jewish sophistication. And this was talking about in the Jewish religious system, that they had so many rules and so many regulations. Jesus referred to this when he said that you make the word of God of none effect through your traditions and doctrines of men that you've received. And so traditions, all of the religious interpretations, all of their Jewish sophistication, all of the things that they had added to it was hindering the word of God. Literally, the people that Paul was writing to here were people who had had the simplicity of the gospel presented to them, but then there were also legalistic Jews around who was saying that just faith in Jesus isn't enough. You've also got to be circumcised. You've got to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. You've got to do the Passover. You've got to observe all of these rituals. You've got to go through the cleansing and the washings and all of these kind of things. And that's what he was talking about. There was a mindset that was being used by the devil to come against the simplicity of the Word of God. And this is literally, out of all of the things that I've studied on the word philosophy, this is kind of what it all boils down to. A philosophy is a way of thinking, a system of thought, as opposed to individual thoughts. Now I want you to think about this for just a moment. This is very important because most Christians have heard Christian truths. They've heard Christian principles. They've got pieces of information here and there. But you know what? A a philosophy is more than just individual thoughts. It's an entire approach. It's a way of thinking. It's weaving all of these truths, these individual truths together in a way that makes a different outlook. 
a different way of thinking. Now, this is really important, what I'm saying here. And again, I'm, I'm aware that most people, when you use this word philosophy, they think about that's something that applies to Plato or Socrates or something like that. It has no bearing on our present day. But the truth is, every person has a philosophy. You do have a philosophy. You've got a way of thinking. It's like a filter in your mind that takes every piece of information that you receive and filters it through this philosophy. And, you know, some of you think, oh, this isn't true. I'm, I'm just totally open and whatever uh, facts are presented to me, I base my opinion and my judgment upon just total, pure observation. There's no prejudice or on my part whatsoever. That's really not true. And there's so many ways that I could approach that. But, you know, uh, I've traveled overseas a lot. And I've been to a lot of different places. And every country that you go to basically has a philosophy, a way of looking at things. And they filter everything through that. Now, I could spend a lot of time giving you illustrations of this. But if any of you have traveled overseas, you could bear witness with this. Uh, just one quick example to illustrate what I'm talking about. I remember going over into Poland before the Berlin Wall came down. This is while communism was still in force and there was a tremendous oppression over there and things like this. Well, of course, if I open up my mouth, everybody's going to know I'm not Polish. And, uh, you know, I wear boots and I uh, had on American-type clothes and so everywhere we went, people were just pointing us. We went into these little tiny villages, remote areas that many of them had not seen Westerners come in. And they just could tell that we were an American and uh, we drew a crowd everywhere we went. So anyway, because of this, I borrowed the clothes from the fellow that uh, we were traveling with. He was our interpreter. I borrowed his clothes and I stood on a street corner I was not dressed like an American. I wasn't doing any of these kind of things. And I just wanted to kind of observe the people and kind of blend in so that they wouldn't notice me. And I wasn't out there five minutes. I mean, this is no exaggeration. I was standing on a street corner and in less than five minutes, dressed in their clothes, not opening my mouth, not doing anything, people were all around me, kids and everybody going, American, American, American. And I was just shocked. And I went back in and I asked the guy who was our interpreter, I said, how did those people know I was an American? I didn't say anything. I was dressed in your clothes. How did they know I was an American? He says, it's your attitude. And I said, attitude? I didn't say a word. I didn't do anything. And he began to explain to me that these people had lived under communism and that because of communism, you know what? There, there were secret police. People were constantly being scrutinized. They were fearful. They lived under an oppression. And because of this, there was just some th He began to teach me that in Poland, prior to the fall of communism, you never looked a person in the face. Because if you looked them eyeball to eyeball, you know, you can tell a lot about a person by looking them straight in the face. And these people were afraid that this person might be a KGB. They had things to hide. They were fearful that they were going to be interrogated or something happened. And so they never made eye contact. I was making eye contact with people. The people, and I don't know how to explain this sufficiently if you haven't observed this, but they actually started teaching us that if we wanted to bend, blend in, we had to walk with our head down, 
You didn't look up and look around. You didn't smile when you saw a person. You didn't act kind. You didn't greet people. You didn't look like you were happy. You would never walk down and and look like you were enjoying the day. But they had a body language where they kept their head down and they would bend their shoulders over, kind of like, you know, showing submission like they were beat down. That's the way that the people in Poland were under the communist system. And my body language and the fact that I'd look at people in the face and the fact that I'd smile. And he says, you just have an attitude that you can tell that you weren't Polish. You know what that is? You can describe it a lot of different ways, but it's a philosophy. You could take a drunk, you could take a person who is struggling in the United States and poor and having all kinds of problems, and yet they're free. And you put them in one of those communist countries, and again, you know, some people may not relate to this because we've seen the end of these the communist bloc over there in Eastern Europe, but if you could have taken one of these people who was struggling in the United States and put them over in one of those countries, I guarantee you they would have stood out because they had a different attitude, a different philosophy. Even if they were down on their luck, if they were struggling, they have a different way of looking at things. A person who is free has a different philosophy than a person who is living under an oppressive system. It's just a different way of thinking, and it filters everything you do. Another friend of mine in Budapest, I remember him telling me one time that he had come to the United States. And uh, we were discussing some of the differences that he saw. And this is back again before uh, Hungary was freed from the communist system and uh, they were still living under that communist oppression. And so I was asking him some questions and I said, what were some of the biggest differences that you saw? And without any hesitation, he says, you Americans are so gullible. He says, you trust so easily. And I asked him to explain what he was talking about. And he says, anything they put on the television and say that it's news, you just believe that it's true. He says, under the communist system, there was just nothing but total propaganda on the television and on the radio. And he said, because of it, we have developed an attitude, what I believe the Bible would call a philosophy, that they just didn't trust anything on face value. They were very skeptical. They analyzed everything. And he says, you Americans are so trusting. You just believe anything that they tell you. Now, again, see, that's a philosophy based on past experience. And whether you understand it or not, you have a philosophy. It just, it may not be what you are referring to. You may not be real conscious of it. But every person, wherever you are around the world, you have a philosophy, a system of thinking, a way of thinking that will restrict your actions. Say, for instance, if you have been raised under hardship and under terrible things, if you were abused, if uh, all of these things happened to you, it forms a philosophy. You know, I can think of a million of examples, but I've uh, seen specifically, I'm thinking of some people right now, a woman who went through a very bad marriage situation, was abused verbally, sexually, terrible, terrible experience. Because of that, she's got a hurt that she hasn't dealt with, hasn't gotten straight, and she has a hatred and a distrust for all men And that's a philosophy. Because she's been abused and because something has happened, she doesn't trust anybody and she just hates all men and it just shouts every time she comes around and it's causing tremendous problems in her life. You know what? That is a philosophy. That's something that is a mindset that filters everything. 
And you can go in and, you know, you could have two or three women there and you could compliment every one of them on the way they looked. One of them might say, well, thank you, and take it as a tremendous compliment. But you take that one that with a philosophy because they've been hurt and abused and they're distrustful and they're angry at man, and they'll yell sexual harassment and they'll come against you. And the woman right next to them took it as a compliment. It's not because what you said necessarily, a lot of it has to do with the way you think. If you're bearing all of these hurts and these kind of things, it just taints everything that you say and do. Another example of this is like a pessimist and an optimist. Again, those attitudes or philosophies are dependent a lot on training background, the way that you've been brought up, the way that things went around you. But you could take a pessimist and an optimist, sit them side by side, expose them to identical situations, and you would get totally different results. The pessimist would see the worst side of the thing. Fear would come upon them. They would find some way to gripe and complain to predict failure out of the thing, whereas the optimist would look at the exact same situation and see a potential for success and a way to uh, position themselves and better themselves. See, that's a philosophy. And so whether you realize it or not, every one of us have philosophies, systems of thought. And here's one of the main points I want to get across is that your philosophy, not just individual pieces of information, but your system of thought, your worldview, your paradigm, or what the Bible calls your philosophy, It influences and basically dictates, controls your responses. Now, this is an important piece of information. There's a lot of us that just think that uh, these external situations and these problems and it's my boss and it's my society or it's the color of my skin or my lack of education and it's this and it's that and we blame everything external for the way things are going in our life. But that really isn't true. Now, it's true that different people have different challenges and stuff. But ultimately, the Bible says in Proverbs 23, 7, as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. That's talking about any person. Your life is going the way of your dominant thought. The way you think in your heart controls the way your life goes. Not what other people are doing to you. Not the advantages or disadvantages that you were dealt in life but it is the way you think. And you cannot consistently experience anything contrary to the way you think. So if you have a bad way of thinking, or what I believe the Bible calls a negative philosophy, a non-Christian philosophy, a philosophy that's not based on the Word of God, then it's impossible for you to get the Christian or Word of God or positive results that God has promised. You are going to be the way you think. And many Christians have not really changed their way of thinking. They may have some additional information in there. Now they believe that God exists. Now they believe that the Bible is the truth. Now they believe all of these things. But until you take those individual thoughts and weave them together to form an entire brand new approach and outlook on life, you aren't going to get the right results. Now let me go back and read it here. It says in verse 8, Colossians 2 eight, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of man, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. 
This scripture says the way that Satan comes and spoils us, that is, conquers us and takes from us the great things that God has given to us, is through philosophy, which is talking about a system of thought, a way of thinking. And it's amazing how many Christians have heard things. They have little pieces of information filed away in their brain but they haven't meditated on it until it soaks down and literally influences and changes their core beliefs, their core values. For instance, here's an example of what I'm talking about. We had one Bible college student who came here, and just a great woman. I really loved her. We got along great, and she was a great woman. And she heard my teaching on prosperity, and intellectually she had these facts up there. And she knew and she could quote and tell you the verses that I used to say that God wants us to prosper and God wants to meet our needs, etc. She understood it intellectually. But at the heart level, her philosophy, she was raised, she's probably in her 60s, and she was raised not during the Depression, but her parents went through the Depression and they had such a poverty mentality, or you could say a poverty uh, philosophy, that they turned every you know jar upside down, put water in it, and diluted it till they could get all of the jelly, all of the honey out. They never threw anything away. Now, there's a balance to what I'm saying here. I'm not saying to be wasteful, but I am saying that actually you can get to where you spend so much time trying to get the last little bit out of something. You can be a person, you know, that wants to save money by using coupons, and there's nothing wrong with that. But if you drive across town and spend $5 on gas to save 20 cents on a coupon, you have overall wasted your time and money. You know, you you can't be so poverty-minded that you just are constantly scrimping and trying to get by. This woman was raised with the philosophy that was so rooted in her that even though she knew what the Word said, she still thought poor. She still was fearful that, you know, there was going to be an economic downturn and that we were going to have a stock market crash and that everybody was going to be out. She didn't trust the banks. They kept their money personally and they hoarded and did all of this. That is a poverty mentality. And it may allow you to accumulate a certain degree of wealth, but you're never going to succeed and truly prosper the way God wants you to with a poverty mentality. So you've got to do more than just take scriptures that says, but my God shall supply all of your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. That has to be more than just information to you. That has to become revelation to you. goes down to the deepest part of your belief system to where you begin to start seeing yourself prosperous. See, if all you do is take scriptures about how God will supply your needs and how God you give and it will be given unto you and you have those thoughts you have that piece of information, but your basic philosophy is that you see yourself poor. You see yourself doing without. You are never going to see yourself succeeding. See, that's a philosophy. And if you've got a negative philosophy, you can't take scriptures and get a positive results. Going back again to Proverbs 23, 7, as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. The way you think on this heart level, your philosophy, your overall overriding system of thought is going to determine what your experience is. Let me use this passage of Scripture. This is out of Acts chapter 17, 
and in verse 18. This is the only other time that the word philosophy or philosophers is used in the Bible. This is a rare word, but it's used here in Acts chapter 17, verse 18. And uh, it's when Paul was in Athens, and it says, Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him, and some said, What will this babbler say? Others, some, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him to the uh, Acropolis, and they began to start inquiring. They, it says that these people did nothing except sit around all day and look for some new philosophy, some new approach, some new way of looking at things. Let me go back and just look at this. It says that there were certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics. Now, I'm taking this out of my study Bible on the book of Acts. I tell you, if you hadn't gotten one of these, you, you ought to get it because there's some powerful things in here. And this is some of the research material that I did on these two sects of the Epicureans and the Stoics. Now, listen to this. It says the Epicureans were so named after the philosopher Epicurus He was born in 341 B.C. and taught for 38 years in a school that he founded in Athens. He did not believe in a creator, believing that everything just happens. Sounds just like today, doesn't it? There's a lot of people just like this. However, he did believe in multiple gods which took no part in human affairs. He taught that pleasure was to be pursued and pain avoided at all costs. Regardless of how pure Epicurus' motives may have been, it was not long until the Epicureans, that means the followers of Epicurus, degenerated into a materialistic, pleasure-seeking sect. This was the exact opposite of the other popular school of thought upheld by the Stoics, which were also mentioned in this verse. So to summarize this, people who were Epicureans or had the Epicurean philosophy were people that believed pursue pleasure at all costs, avoid pain, any negative thing. If it's going to cost you something, if it's going to be painful, avoid it. Now, you know what? That philosophy will destroy people because I can guarantee you that there's many things in life that are going to cost you pain. There are some things that are going to cost you, such as freedom. This really shouldn't need to be said, except that we have this Epicurean philosophy. They don't call it that, but we have this same mindset in our societies today where there are people that it doesn't matter. If you can get your needs met and if you can prosper, then you don't care about the rest of the world. You forget your responsibility to fight terrorism anywhere on the face of the earth and just indulge yourself Put yourself, what about you? If it's going to cost you someone you love, if it's going to cost you an inconvenience, hang the rest of the world, forget anybody else. It's all about me. It's all about pursuing pleasure. It's all about me avoiding pain. And if that's what your philosophy is, your basic system of thinking, then you are going to be in opposition to the Word of God because the Word of God does not teach that type of thing. Jesus taught it's better to exalt other people than it is to yourself. It's really the way you find happiness is in denying yourself, not in satisfying yourself. It's in putting other people first, laying down your life for other people. This Epicurean philosophy is really very prevalent today. They may not use the same terminology, but it's the exact same thing. And it's a philosophy. Now, in contrast to that, the Stoics were another group of people, and here's Uh, the information about the Stoics. It says the name Stoic came from the Greek word stoa, which means porch. 
This sect was so named because its founder, Zeno, taught for about 58 years from 308 to 250 B.C. in the marketplace of Athens from a porch. Therefore, the Stoic, uh, they were called Stoics, and the Stoic philosopher Seneca was a tutor to Nero and Marcus Aurelius. I can't even pronounce that, but he was a Roman emperor, and he was a devout Stoic. Stoics believe that it is truly, a uh, truly wise man would dominate his emotions so that they would never influence him positively or negatively. They accomplished this by believing that whatever happened was fate and therefore their lot in life. They taught a very frugal life, rejecting all luxury in food and clothing. Their philosophy was the opposite of the Epicureans, uh, although they both did not believe in a resurrection of the body. Together, the Stoics and the Epicureans represented the complete spectrum of man's wisdom during that period of time. You know, we use the word stoic today to refer to a person who just doesn't show any emotions. They don't have highs or lows. We call them stoic. And what that's referring to is a mindset, a philosophy. And you see this, like in the old westerns back, uh, say, 25 to 50 years ago, all of the leading characters were stoic. They didn't have the great highs, but they didn't have the lows. They'd go through these tremendous uh, you know, tragedies and episodes and they'd just walk through it and never show any emotion and they were strong and all of these things. That's what you call stoic. That's a philosophy. And we're seeing this philosophy change in our day and age. Men used to be uh, encouraged to be stoic where they didn't show any emotion. Today, that's being criticized and we're talking about a gentler, kinder, more emotional type of male figure and things like this. That's a philosophy. And if you have this basic philosophy, it's going to control the way you act. A man will act as he thinks in his heart, is what Proverbs 23, 7 says. You may not use that terminology. You may think, oh, no, I, I don't. You know, I just approach every day and make my decisions based on what information is presented to me. But that's really not true. You have a philosophy Either, you know, you fear everything, you're running scared, you're a pessimist, that's a philosophy, or you're an optimist. You have a core belief that you are just going to prosper, that it doesn't matter what's thrown at you, that you can. there's a way to turn this for good. That's a philosophy. And if you have a negative philosophy, then it doesn't matter what opportunities are put before you. It doesn't matter what scriptures you're standing on, what you're trying to believe for. It doesn't matter who you have praying for you. If at your core heart belief, your philosophy, your paradigm, your way of thinking is negative and you see yourself failing, then that's going to become a self-fulfilling prophecy. As you think in your heart, that's the way that you are. And you know, I could take a a side trail here and teach on some things. I don't want to do this because um, it would just take me a week or two to fully teach on this. I'll just have to mention this in passing. But there are many scriptures that establish that the way you think in your heart, that's the way things are going to be. And it's not just talking about an individual thought, not just a passing thought, not just because you have a positive thought once in your life, but talking about your dominant way of thinking or what we're talking about here, your philosophy, determines your outcome. Let me just use one scripture on this and I'll try and make this brief. I've got other teaching where I go into a lot more detail, but this is such an important truth, I can't let it slip. 
In Hebrews chapter 11, it's talking about Abraham and Sarah and how that they obeyed God and they went out and because of this they became the father of faith and God blessed them. Great things happened. And it says in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 15, And truly if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. Now for Abraham and Sarah, they were given a command by God to leave Ur of the Chaldees and go into this land that God had promised them. And for them to go back, to return, would have been unbelief. It would have been disobedience, rebellion at what God told them to do. So this verse is saying that if they had been mindful of the country that they came out of, they might have had opportunity to return. Opportunity to return for them was sin. It was temptation, disobedience. You could say this, that you, from based on this truth right here, that since they weren't mindful of the country they, they came out of, they didn't even have opportunity to return. Or you could say it this way, that you cannot be tempted with something that you don't think. Now that is a radical statement. You have to have a receptiveness in your heart before you can go do something. Here's another way of saying it. A friend of mine uh, made this analogy one time. He says it's like being in a tunnel or in a, a mine. You can't just walk through those solid rock walls or dirt walls. What you have to do is hollow out a place. You have to excavate a place, take that rock and dirt out of there, and then once you remove the rock and the dirt, once you've hollowed out this place, then you can enter into that. Well, it's the same way. You can't do anything that you haven't already been there in your mind. Now, some of you may disagree with this because, again, this isn't a philosophy that is being taught and promoted today. This is contrary to the way that people think. Our society today is saying basically that we are just a victim, that you can't help yourself. The reason you are having these problems is because somebody's done this to you. It's because it's unfair. We need to give you more money. We need to do this. We aren't teaching self responsibility for things. We're saying that it's just unfair and these people are dealt the wrong lot in life. That's a philosophy. Now see, if that's your philosophy, if you believe that people aren't individually responsible and that they can't overcome adversity if they would just begin to start believing the right things and be encouraged, if you have an overriding philosophy that the only way people can uh, prosper is for government or for somebody else to come along and change their circumstances and make things different, well, then you are going to be just like this with basically Christianity because Christianity has a different philosophy. You know, let me just diverge here for just a moment. I'm going to say some things that probably get me into some hot water with people. But I tell you, this at its core is what's really dividing our societies today. I'm talking predominantly about the Western main, uh, Western countries, uh, some of the leading nations in the world. Our culture is being torn apart and there's a division happening and we call it liberal and conservative and things like this. But at its core, it's just a philosophy. There is a philosophy of people that they do not want to be accountable to a creator. They do not want to be told that there is any responsibility on their part 
If they've got a problem, it has nothing to do with them and their choices. It's because somebody else hasn't treated them right. What they need is more rights. You need everybody else to get off your case. They're trying to change all of these things externally. They are not assuming any responsibility for themselves. And then on the other hand, you will have people proclaiming that, you know what, if you would get off your, off of uh, the people's backs and quit passing all of these regulations and if we would encourage individuals and stuff, then we would see these changes that we need come to pass from within people if we would quit putting so many restrictions on that. And the people over here who don't like that approach are going to say, but what about the people who are going to fall through the cracks and all of this kind of stuff? It basically comes back to a philosophy I don't know if I'm communicating this properly. But I have done a lot of thinking about this, about why we see such a polarization in our nation. And it basically comes back that there are, it is a basic philosophy, a way of thinking, that some people do not want to be accountable to a creator. Therefore, they are, I mean, dead set against any Christianity, any morality, They want to take the Ten Commandments out. You know why? Because it condemns their homosexuality. It condemns their immorality. It condemns their lying. It condemns their pleasure that they don't observe a day that they honor God. It just cramps their style. And so they they come out against it and they base it on, well, we're First Amendment rights and all of this. No, the bottom line is they're just using that as an excuse. It's a perversion. For over 200 years in the United States, the First Amendment was never interpreted as being that you couldn't have any Christian influence. That's not what it was ever meant. But they are using that as an excuse to justify their immoral life. They do not want anybody that comes against them and puts any personal responsibility on them. They say you can't legislate all of these things. You know, if you were to follow that thinking all the way through, well, does that mean then that you can't legislate a person murdering? Because after all, I mean, that's a personal choice. Don't they have freedom of choice? Can't you go out and murder if you want to? Well, a society can't last if you do that. See, they do draw the line someplace, but they just don't want it drawn to where they are accountable, uh, you know, to God's standard. They want to change the standards. They want to lessen it. It's all a philosophy trying to justify their ungodliness. That is absolutely wrong. And actually, it's a humanistic approach where they're trying to factor God out of the thing and reduce us to being just an evolved animal that is no different than anybody else. See, if you look at all of these things, if you keep peeling back the layers, it all goes back to these systems of thought. And there are people today that are not accepting personal accountability, personal responsibility. It's everybody else that has made us the way that we are. That is a philosophy. And if you buy into that philosophy, well, then that's going to taint your understanding. It's going to influence your actions, your values, and everything else. And people basically have bought into a philosophy, a way of thinking that is contrary to what God's Word says. Therefore, the standards that are in God's Word that says you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not lie, you shall not do all of these things. Honor your father and mother. These standards violate the basic uh, humanistic philosophy about self and about do whatever you want and cast off all restraint and reject any type of condemnation. 
And so these two philosophies are in conflict, and that's the reason we see our world polarizing today is because of these philosophies. You can give individual pieces of information. Like you can sit there and try and convince people that homosexuality is a sin and it's wrong. Not to hate the homosexual, but to hate the act of homosexuality because it's destroying people's lives and it's destroying societies today. There can be, you can operate in total love, but just have a standard that says this is right and this is wrong. People with the philosophy that nothing is right and wrong. It's just all dependent upon whatever you want to do. You are God. You make your own choices. Nobody rules over you. People with that philosophy are going to hate those who believe that homosexuality is a sin and there's going to be conflict. And you could sit there and try and deal with that one thing, but as long as their philosophy is intact then you aren't going to change it. So what I do is try and go beyond the individual issues and I go to the root cause of things and I'm trying to deal with people's basic philosophy. If you want to see change over here, you can't just try and change in one area. Like say, for instance, a person can't just say, all right, from now on I'm not going to steal. But then they're still going to hold on to... uh, Uh, lying and immorality and adultery and things like this. See, that's inconsistent. The same selfishness and the same resistance against standards of right and wrong that caused the stealing is the same root that causes adultery and lying over here and all of these other things. You, as long as you have the root there, you can't just clip off one of the branches and think that that stopped all of the problem. You still got that same manifestation coming in these other areas. I don't know if I'm making that clear or not, but I tell you, this is really important that people recognize that the root of all of these sins and problems that we see in our society and also in our individual life comes down to basic philosophy, systems of thought, ways of thinking. And I'm going to be systematically going through this and showing you a lot of different things that need to change if you want a Christian philosophy. Let me turn over to Genesis chapter 3 and illustrate this through the way that Satan came against Adam and Eve. You know, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, the scripture there says, I fear lest as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that's in Christ. And he, uh, the Apostle Paul was drawing a comparison between the way we are tempted and the way that Adam and Eve were tempted. So let's go back to the very first temptation that came on the face of the earth and look at some things, and we can learn from this. In Genesis chapter 3 is where this took place. And in verse 1 it says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made, And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Now think about this. It says the serpent was more subtle. The word subtle means crafty, sly, cunning, deceptive, is what this word subtle is talking about. Now why did Satan choose to use an animal that was sly, deceptive, cunning, crafty? Why didn't he use an animal like a mammoth? Why didn't he have some, you know, uh, tiger or a lion or some ferocious beast come and intimidate them and try and overpower them? Why didn't he have this mammoth just put his head on Eve's, I mean his foot on Eve's head and press just a little bit and say, either eat of this fruit or I'll kill you? 
Well, you know, one of the reasons that Satan didn't take that approach is because in the first place, he didn't have the power and the authority to make Adam and Eve do anything. Adam and Eve were the absolute rulers over this creation that God had given them. They had absolute authority, and there was no beast that God created that could do anything against them. They were the rulers. They were the masters. So Satan didn't have that authority. The reason he came and used this serpent is because of his subtlety, his craftiness, his deception. And here's the point that I'm trying to get across. That Satan's strongest weapon against us is not a frontal attack to where he tries to overpower you and overwhelm you and force you into doing something. But rather, it's exactly as it said over here in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy, through a way of thinking. Satan used an animal who was subtle, crafty, sly, cunning, to come and start deceiving Adam and Eve. And it says over in 2 Timothy chapter 2 that Eve was deceived. Eve fell prey to this. Satan came with uh, different thoughts than what they had ever had before. He began to challenge God's Word and come against these things. And the way that Satan originally came against mankind is the way that he is still coming against mankind. It is, he's not really overpowering people. Like Some of you are probably too young to remember Flip Wilson, but Flip Wilson really popularized this saying about the devil made me do it. The truth is the devil's never made anybody do anything. All he does is tempt you, and if he can affect the way you think, then you are the one that caused yourself to do this. Your life is a series or a reaction or a series of choices. And it's the choices you make in your mind on the inside that cause you to act the way that you do. If you're bitter and angry, it's not what people have done to you. It's the choices, the way you think about it that make you the way you are. If you're defeated and if you're depressed and discouraged and timid and shy and and, uh, you just can't prosper, it's not what things have happened to you on the outside, but rather it's the way you've processed it in your mind. I could take people that have gone through a greater adversity than you have, and yet those adversities made them strong, whereas they've made you weak. And basically, Adam and Eve had a philosophy that was pure. It was perfect. They had not been corrupted by sin. They loved God. They trusted God. They were completely dependent upon God. They had never questioned His wisdom, His ability. You know how Satan got them into sin? It was through a way of thinking. He began to come against everything that they had as a foundation in their way of thinking. And he began to start questioning, first of all, the Word of God, questioning whether God really loved them or whether He was giving them this command to oppress them and to hold them back and to hold something from them. He, question, he brought into question God's goodness. He, brought in, he just challenged their basic way of thinking. And this is exactly the same way that Satan is fighting us today. And some people wonder, well, how do you know what is the proper way to think? That's why God gave us His Word. This Word is God-breathed. This is God speaking to us. And this is God's attitude and right and wrong. And our thinking should be based entirely, 100%, upon the Word of God. 
Sad to say it's not that way with most people. Even most Christians do not firmly have their belief system, their philosophy, the foundational beliefs rooted in the Word of God. They're more influenced by society, by motion pictures, by their upbringing, by grandma and grandpa than they are by the Word of God. And that's the reason that we have the problems that we do. You know, Adam and Eve right here, if they hadn't have changed the way they thought, they would not have entered into sin. Satan came at them through philosophy. He presented a different philosophy to them than what God created them with. And this is the way that everything happens. You know, I could use a million examples of this, but let me just give you uh, one more example of this over in 1 Kings chapter 19. This is where Elijah, the man of God, who had been seeking God, who had prophesied there was going to be a drought, it came to pass. He became a dominant figure in the nation because of that prophecy. Then he called all of the people together, challenged the prophets of Baal to a duel, and basically said, let's have the God who can demonstrate and do something in the physical realm. We'll serve Him. And so he had them build an altar and put a sacrifice on it, but no fire to it. And they called on their God, Baal, to answer by fire. And they went from morning until evening and nothing happened. They even cut themselves and jumped on the altar and offered themselves as a sacrifice if Baal would answer and send fire down from heaven. Nothing happened. And then Elijah, he offered a sacrifice, but he didn't put any fire on the wood. He put the wood there, but no fire to it. He even drenched the sacrifice in the wood and water, did all of these things. And then he says, God, let them know that you're the true God. And fire fell from heaven and consumed the sacrifice, even the stones, the dirt there. It burned everything. It was an intense fire. The people fell down and said, the Lord, he is the God. The Lord, he is the God. And he saw this great revival happen. All of these wonderful things happen. But then in the 19th chapter of 1 Kings, after all of these tremendous successes and victories in Elijah's life, it says in, in 1 Kings 19.1, And Ahab told Jezebel, Ahab was the king, Jezebel was the queen, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and with all how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. Elijah had killed 450 prophets of Baal, and, and Jezebel was mad because she these were her prophets that she had personally commissioned and supported and did all of this. And she sent a messenger and says, If you... If you aren't dead like one of them by this time tomorrow, I pray that God kills me. She swore with an oath and sent this messenger to tell Elijah. And it says in verse 3, When he saw that, he arose and went for his life, and he fled. And he sat under a juniper tree and began to whine and complain and talk about that nobody loves you, God, but me. I'm the only one. This man who had seen so many great miracles happen, how could he come from just... I mean seeing fire fall from heaven and being so powerful that he killed all of these prophets of Baal. He called for an end to the drought. He was so pumped he actually outran a chariot for 20 miles. On foot, he outran a chariot. I mean, this guy was just flowing in the power and the anointing of God and in 48 hours, he was sitting under a juniper tree asking God to kill him, praying that he could die. 
How could you change from being in total victory to total defeat to the point that you were wanting to die? How can something like that happen so quickly? The key to it is that Jezebel sent a messenger and began to start saying things to him that were contrary to what God had said to him. And the key is, it says in verse 3, that he saw it. He saw himself dead. You know what? He began to entertain thoughts contrary to what God had said. And this man who was so powerful and stood against the king and stood against the prophets of Baal and won and overcame them, he ran from a woman who sent a note. You know, Jezebel didn't have the power to really do to him what she claimed. If she did, she wouldn't have sent a messenger with a note. She would have sent a soldier with a sword. If she really just wanted Elijah dead, she would have just killed him, sent her armies and surrounded him and killed him. But you know what? Their regime was no different than than regimes that we see today. Even though that there are despots in charge and that they murder people and do things, they do it secretively. They do it behind the scenes. They cannot stand public opinion. If the people were to totally revolt, they couldn't handle it. They'd lose all of their support. Jezebel, I believe, wanted Elijah dead, but she couldn't do it or she would have done it. The reason she sent a messenger with a threat was because she couldn't really bring it to pass, but she was trying to scare him. And what happened was she got inside of Elijah's mind. And Elijah lost the battle in his mind. There never were any soldiers that came and tried to kill him. There never was any physical thing that caused him to run It was a threat that caused him to run. He had already stood against Ahab. He had already defeated all of the prophets of Baal. The entire nation was on their face saying, the God of Elijah, he's the true God. They were rejecting Baal. The public opinion was on his side. They had a tremendous revival going. But you know what? Uh, Jezebel was able to get inside of his mind. She got inside of his thoughts and he saw himself dead like one of those prophets that he had killed. He killed 450 prophets of Baal, and there was another 400 prophets of the grove. And it's implied that he killed all of them. But at least 450, maybe 850 people, Elijah killed. And I mean, he didn't send them to a gas chamber or something. He had a sword, and he personally killed all of these people. If you were to kill 800, either 450, 800 people, In one afternoon, I guarantee you, it would have been a gory sight. He would have been splattered with blood. It was just brutal. It was amazing. I can't, it's hard for me even to imagine what that would look like. But Elijah was there. He was covered in blood. He saw these people die. He had a very vivid image of this in his mind. And when Jezebel sent the note, He saw that. It says he saw himself dead, like what she had said. And that's where he lost it. He lost it in his mind. He changed from a philosophy of believing that God was with him and that God was going to cause him to triumph and that God was protecting him. He changed from that boldness and that authority that he had displayed in the 18th chapter and instead he saw himself dead. And you know what? If you see yourself failing, If you see yourself inferior and inadequate to the opposition out here, then that's going to control the way you act. Once he saw it on the inside, 
instead of standing up to the queen and being bold with her the way that he was to the king and to all of the army and all of the people, instead he ran from this woman because he saw himself defeated on the inside. There are some of you that you know that the scripture says that God wants you to prosper and that God wants to answer your needs and that whatsoever you ask, He'll give it to you and all of these things. You have that. But your bottom philosophy is you see yourself a loser. You see yourself a failure. You've done it in the past. Maybe your parents told you that you'd never amount to anything. Maybe somebody or a previous mate told you that you're never going to succeed. Maybe you left a church and because you left there, a manipulative and dominating religious leader told you you're cursed and that you will never prosper. And you've let those words affect your basic philosophy. You may have the talents and the ability to succeed, but if you see yourself failing, if you feel like you're cursed, if you've got this basic understanding on the inside that nothing's going to work for you, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I'm just telling you, this is what the Scripture is saying here, that the way you are spoiled, defeated, is through the way you think. You've got to change the way you think. You've got to change your basic core values to line up with the Word of God. God's Word has given us the proper way of thinking, the proper philosophy. And sad to say, most people are not being dominated and controlled by the Word of God today. They are being controlled by secular, humanistic ways of thinking. And we've got to go back to what God's Word has to say. Well, that's powerful.